Proverbs is going to start next week because promotion week, and I didn't want our freshmen to come in and feel like they were in the middle of a series or had missed out. So we're going to start Proverbs next week. But it just so happened that I was thinking this week about uh, something that's been in the headlines, if you've been paying attention. Um, Thankfully, and by God's grace, it appears that the Supreme Court is about to overturn a law that's been on the books since 1973, and that law is known as Roe v. Wade, uh, which federalized the legalization of abortion. And we as a church, and we as a people, as Christians, and there are others as well, but certainly as Christians, we have been railing against that from its passage, and we will continue to rail against it. And the reason is because of numbers like this one on the screen behind me, 42.6 million. 42.6 million represents the number of lives lost to abortion last year. I want you to wrap your mind around that number. 42.6 million deaths from abortion. Put that in perspective, some other numbers. Cancer took 8.2 million people last year. Smoking took 5 million people who died from smoking-related illnesses. AIDS took another 1.7 million people. And maybe you're wondering about traffic fatalities. Where did that come into play? 1.3 million people. So you consider that, and then you consider this number, 42.6 million deaths via abortion. I was curious, so I I looked up how many deaths were there not related to abortion last year in the world. There were 58.7 million non-abortion-related deaths. 58.7 million non-abortion-related deaths. So if we go back one to that 42.6 million abortions, which doesn't factor into this 58.7, if we add it in, here's what the numbers tell us, that in 2021, abortions accounted for over 40% of the total deaths in the world. Over 40% attributed to abortion, 42.6 million. So far in 2022, if you're wondering if we're doing any better, we're we're not, we're already at, and in fact, this number's outdated. I can give you the updated one. This was, I I put this number up at four o'clock today, 17,398,000 deaths from abortion. You wanna know where we're at today? According to worldometers.info, which is where a lot of these stats come from, worldometers.info, and they they draw things straight from the CDC. The current number of abortions this year is 17,403,149, 150, 152, 153, 154. It's actually ticking up on that website as I'm speaking. So it's impossible to get a real time because you're just going to get a snapshot, but then the next second there's another baby gone. 17.4 million so far this year. Like I said, the Supreme Court is getting ready to overturn Roe v. Wade, which was the law that made it legal federally to have an abortion in, in any state in the United States. Now, this does not necessarily make abortions illegal, but it puts the decision back in the hands of the state. But here's the unfortunate reality, and that is 
We live, for instance, in a state where our governor's response was, I'm going to make more abortion easier for people in California. And then you've got companies like Amazon and others that have come out and said, you know what, we're going to pay for people to fly to states where abortion is legal to be able to get an abortion so that then if they live in a state where it's illegal, we're going to pay and cover their expenses to get out there so that they can murder another life. Abortion is wrong. I hope that doesn't come as a shock to you. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, okay, but is all abortion wrong? What about those cases, like what about rape and incest? Where a, a woman is victimized and then she becomes pregnant as a result of that and she's carrying a baby that will forever remind her of the sin that was committed against her. Is it okay then to have an abortion? Well, let me first say that those two things, rape and incest, are horrific. And justice needs to be done against the perpetrator of that crime but let me also say that the perpetrator of that crime is not the baby that that woman then carries and so in a situation of rape and incest would I say that abortion is okay I would say no and if you've got a, a person who is unable to think about raising that child from that time forward being reminded of that every time they look at the child, I, I understand that. I do. That's where I would counsel towards adoption as a result. And our world pushes back against that and says, well, that's even harder to give up the, the, the baby to adoption after carrying it for nine months. So what our world does is dehumanizes the baby into a fetus or a clump of cells and kills it. So is abortion right in the case of rape and incest? No, it's not. Well, what about a threat to the mother's safety? Then, if, if the mother's life is at risk, should she then have the green light to abort the baby? There's something called an ectopic pregnancy, where the egg can be fertilized in the fallopian tube, and if left un, unterminated, that can kill both the baby and the mother. The, the baby is gone. There's no hope for the baby in that situation. But it can also kill the mother. And so there are those situations, ectopic pregnancies, where you say, yes, it, it, for the, the well-being of the mother, since the baby is not going to survive, you terminate it. But outside of that, y'all, I would say no. As parents and any of the, those in the room who are parents, we know that our job is to care for our children at the cost of even our own lives. And that starts from the moment they're conceived. Does the Bible address the issue, though? Does the Bible talk about this particular issue? Does the Bible help us when it comes to 42.6 million babies aborted, or if you want the, the number 17,403, or 17,403,485 abortions and counting so far this year? Does the Bible give us guidance? And the answer is yes. While not dealing with abortions, we're dealing with child sacrifice here in Leviticus chapter 20, verses 2 through 5. Leviticus 20, 2 through 5 says this, Say to the people of Israel, Any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. Notice the penalty here is death. 
The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Moloch and make, to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. He goes on and he talks more about Moloch. What was Moloch? Moloch was a false god, a false deity that was, was part of the Canaanite pagan religion. And it was represented by a bronze statue of a god whose hands were like this in the statue. And this statue was at the center of a fire ring. And the, the fire ring would be lit and kindled. And so there was a blazing fire that would turn the bronze statue glowing red. And what would happen is the parents would bring their children and place their babies in the scalding red hot hands of Moloch and burn the child to death in an offering to this god. And God is saying, I loathe that. Well, there's Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 through 25. Notice the language here and what's described. When two men are fighting together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, so that they're born before their time. If there's no harm, then the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and they shall pay the judges as they determine. But notice verse 23. But if there is harm, you shall pay life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. You've heard the saying, eye for eye and a tooth for tooth, yes? Did you know that that was in the context of talking about a child that was killed as a result of being born prematurely through this altercation that spilled over and and caused this woman to be struck? What am I saying here? I, I want you to see that God values the life of children and the life of the preborn, that, that that is something that the Bible clearly does teach us. But even more specifically than that, and perhaps the, the greatest passage on the sanctity of life is found in Psalm 139. So take your Bibles and open them up to Psalm 139, almost right smack dab in the middle of the Bible. And we're going to talk about why this number behind me on the screen, 42.6 million, why we as a church can never, ever, ever be satisfied or okay with this number. Psalm 139 is a, a classic treatment of the character of God. It talks about his omnipotence, that is his, his being all-powerful. It talks about his omniscience, that he knows all things. And it also talks about his omnipresence, that he is everywhere all at the same time. As the psalmist says, where can I go from your, your presence? James Boyce said Psalm 139 appeals to both the head and the heart. It's strongly theological, he says, dealing with such important doctrines as these that I just mentioned, omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence. But, he says, it's also wonderfully personal because it speaks of these attributes in ways that impact the psalmist and ourselves. In other words, Psalm 139 reaches into the the heavens and takes the doctrine and the theology of God that he is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, and it brings it down and shows you in your kitchen why that matters to you. Alexander McLaren said, not mere omniscience does God possess, but a knowledge which knows the psalmist altogether, which knows you and me altogether, not mere omnipresence, but a presence which he can nowhere escape. The psalmist can nowhere flee from God's presence. You and I can nowhere flee from God's presence. Not mere, he says, creative power, but a power which shaped him. A power of God that shaped 
us. These things, he says, fill and thrill the psalmist's soul. Specifically tonight, look down at verse 13. We're going to look at verses 13 through 16 together. Starting in verse 13, we read this. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your books were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Verse 13, for you, the psalmist addresses God, you, God, formed my inward parts. You created them. You made them is what that word means. You formed my inward parts. Inward parts meaning my, literally, my kidneys. And you're like, well, that's weird. But that's where the, the, the Hebrews believed this, the seat of emotions resided deep inside. And that's what they were appealing to is the internal organs where, where the, the, that which makes us who we are resides, our soul, our very being. Our heart, as we sometimes refer to it. It says, you formed that. You knitted me together. You formed my inward parts. You know, as we think about why life matters, we have to understand and acknowledge first that it matters because God is the creator of life, the author of life, and not just in Genesis, but in every single womb from that point forward. And for you and I, we have to respect that. Point number one tonight is this. Respect God as the author of life. Respect God as the author of life. Again, he formed our inward parts, our deepest realities. God had a hand in creating that within the womb that we were formed in. Which is why he can say what he says in the beginning part of Psalm 139. Look back at Psalm 139 verse 1. David says, oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. Well, yes, David, he knows you because he knitted you together. He formed your inward parts. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You know the things that are running through my mind. Yes, he does because he is the one that created your mind. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. He's the one that created the, the tongue that we have that forms the syllables and the sounds that speak those words. You hem me in behind me and before me, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, and I cannot attain it. The reason why God possesses such knowledge of us is because he made us. Because he formed us, because he knitted us together, as he goes on to say there. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. It's that imagery there. If you have grandparents, or maybe your mom, or maybe you like to knit and crochet, that God is doing that with life, with you. And he did that where? In, in my mother's womb. And he was doing that with all 42.6 million of these lives as well. If you're wondering, okay, well, here's Psalm 139. Does it bear this out anywhere else in Scripture? The answer is yes. How about Jeremiah 1.5? Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, he's speaking to the prophet, God is. 
before I, the Lord, formed you in your womb, in the mother's, your mother's womb. Jeremiah 1, 5. Uh, Isaiah 49, 5. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb. So Isaiah is saying, the Lord is saying this. Who is the Lord? Oh, the Lord is the one that, that made me in my mother's womb. The Lord is the author of life. The Apostle Paul, Galatians 1.15. Galatians 1.15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born... Talking about God now, and he's saying that God set Paul apart before he even began forming him in the womb. That he had a purpose for Paul before Paul was even born. A creative purpose that was God's. Job 31:15, you get a two-for-one here. Did he did not he who made me in the womb also make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? God is the one creating. God is the one knitting us, forming us, even in the womb. Luke 1.15, speaking of John the Baptist, he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, notice this, even from his mother's womb. So as God is forming John the Baptist in the womb of Elizabeth, he is giving and granting the Spirit to John because of the ministry that John will do on behalf of Jesus. And that's taking place in the womb. Back in our passage in Psalm 139, it, it continues in verse 15. Look down there. It says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. I remember with all of my wife's pregnancies, just the, the, the watching of the, the, the development of, of the baby. And at first you go in and you see the, the ultrasound and it's like a jelly bean. And you're like, I think I see it, but it just, it's, I, sure, that's it. Yep. And then the jelly bean like sprouts these arms and legs. And then you can start to see more and more of the form of the baby. And every single time you go back, you're seeing more. And it's, it's, it's exciting. But in those interim times, you're, you're just left to wonder what's going on in there. How is this child growing? How is this child developing? The psalmist says, that's never God. He's never going, hey, I hope that baby's doing okay. Why not? Because he's the one that's creating that child. He's involved in every single part of the process of the development of that child. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, notice the passive, I was being made. Who was making me? God was. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth, Psalm 139.16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. What a statement. Life comes from God. Originates with God. And what we're realizing and understanding here is that it begins at the moment of conception. So here's what that means, y'all, among other things. There are no accidents. Some of your parents may have been a little bit cruel with you in saying that you were an accident. You weren't an accident. You were life created by God. There's no unplanned pregnancies from God's 
point of view. There are no mistakes. There are no burdens. There are no unwanted children. Again, from God's point of view. Not so much from our world's point of view. Y'all, I'll be honest. When my wife and I found out that we were going to have what we thought was a fourth baby, it was a bit surprising to us. It caught us off guard, and, and we had questions going, wow, we weren't expecting this. And then when we found out we were having twins, uh, it, it was literally jaw-dropping. And the, the doctor at the emergency room came and told us and then left, and we were left to sit there and look at each other and go, what, how are we going to do this? What was a comforting thought for us in that moment was that these lives were created by God. That he wanted them. He gave them to us. and He was creating them in her womb. The world in which we live, though, denies this reality constantly, not just through abortion, but also through murder. When we think about what happened down in Uvalde, Texas this past week, a deranged gunman, a deranged teenager walking into a school and opening fire and killing 19 children. That denies the reality that God is the author of life. Abuse, war, suicide, euthanasia, genocide. The, the list goes on and on and on about how the world launches continual direct assaults on God as the creator and author and sustainer of life. God is the author of life, and it is not our prerogative or right to take that life except in certain situations, be it self-defense or just war or defending the weak, etc. But certainly not because it's an inconvenience to us. What's happening in our world is nothing less than the enemy working against the author of life. And one of the ways he's doing that is he's trying to redefine that which is life what qualifies as life. So now you hear people debating on both sides of the aisle, uh, when does life begin? And you've got bills called the heartbeat bill, and you've got things uh, like people saying, well, uh, it's, it's life when the baby can feel pain, and if the baby can't feel pain, well, then abortion's okay. Or it's, it's life when the baby's viable outside the womb, and now we've completely even jettisoned that idea, and you've got people saying, I should have the right to kill my child even after my child is born. And this is just a grand perversion, and the enemy is just rubbing his hands together, loving every single minute of it. Y'all, what does our psalm say? His eyes saw our unformed substance. He was forming us. God was knitting us together. So here's the reality. When does life begin? Not when the heartbeat can be detected. Not when the baby can feel pain. And certainly not when the baby's viable. Life begins at the moment of conception because that's when God creates it. That's when God begins his work. It's always life. And it's always God's creation. And it's never ours to terminate out of concerns for convenience or fears of how the life will be cared for. There's further implications for this, though, as, as God is the author of life. We know from other passages in Scripture that when God creates life, he creates life, what? In his image. 
that the, the, the child being created in the womb of the mother is a child created in the image of God. So there's 42.6 million image bearers of God gone last year. Every life that God creates is a soul with an eternal destiny. Every life has been created to fulfill God's divine purpose for that life. And here's the reality, y'all. Life is not mechanical or biological. It is uniquely and inherently theological. God is the one behind the creation of life. We need to respect God as the author of life. Look at verse 14. David says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Now David is praising the creative activity of God. He's saying, I am fearfully made. What does that mean? Well, that means he, he's awesomely created. That, that if, if you've ever held a newborn, be it your own or someone else's, and there's that sense of awe and just looking down at this life and realizing, how did this happen? It's amazing. And you're in awe of God's creative activity. That's the, the, the fearfully made. But beyond that, it's, it's wonderfully made. It's good. It is a, a good thing when God creates. And I'm not saying that God creates good people. I'm not arguing that we are good people naturally. We're not. We're fallen. But the quality of God's creation is good. Again, the reason for that is why? Because the Lord was intimately involved in our creation. Verse 13, he formed our inward parts. He knitted us together in our mother's womb. So that has implications for how you and I view ourselves and each other. Point number two tonight is this, honor God's creation. Honor God's creation. Honor God's creation. How do we get to 42.6 million babies killed last year? Well, we get there when we begin to say things like, well, it's an inconvenience. Or when we say it's uh, unwanted. Or when we say, well, it's, it was an accident. When we say, you know what, it's not what I wanted. I wanted a boy. I wanted a girl. I wanted a baby without defect. And so the, the step from here, from when we begin to become so self-absorbed and self-centered that we can't think about the fact that this is God's life that he's creating, that we just get to steward and take care of, then it's a, a slippery slope that doesn't take us long to get to saying things like, oh, you know what, that's not a baby, that's an embryo. Uh, that's not a baby, that's a fetus. That, that's not a baby, that's a clump of cells. That, that's not a baby, it's just some tissue. And then the abortion becomes not murder, but I just need to take care of this. We dehumanize God's good creation. It's the same thing Hitler did. What 
42.6 million people in one year, though. Again, this is a direct frontal assault on the creative activity of God, on what God creates that he says is good, that, that is fearfully and wonderfully made. I mean, imagine for a moment, right, your mom or your grandma or whoever it is that, that cooks for you and, and, and works hard for you and loves you and it's your birthday and she's like, I, I love my, my grandson, my, my son, my daughter, whoever it is so much and she works so hard and she prepares a meal for you and it's your favorite meal and she brings it to you and you know how hard she worked and she went out and she had to buy all the ingredients and it cost her money and she she worked so hard she even gave up some some meetings or some going out and spending time with friends to be able to be there to to make this meal for you she brings it to you you look at the meal and you go over to the trash can and dump it in the trash without even taking a single bite and turn around and walk away and you don't even acknowledge that she's there or imagine the, the Mona Lisa. Imagine right after its completion, walking up to it with a match and lighting the match and throwing it on the, the painting and watching the painting go up in smoke and turning around and walking away without a word. These are meant to be absurd, but no less so than what abortion does to the life that God created. It's his creative work it's his work. It's what he declares is fearfully and wonderfully made. And, and, and we throw it out, literally throw it out. To the tune of 42.6 million lives lost. And maybe you're out there going, okay, I get it. I'm, I'm, I'm not for abortion. I'm anti-abortion. I was anti-abortion before this, so why this sermon? Well, let's drill down a little bit further if we can to talk about the implications of Psalm 139 that go beyond the scope of abortion. How about let's talk about suicidal thoughts for a second. Oh, now we're in a different realm, aren't we? Do you understand that your suicidal thoughts are a direct attack on the, the sovereign goodness of God as the creator of the life that he has made in you? Self-harm. Do you understand? In engaging in self-harm, be it cutting or any other form of, of mutilation, you are defacing God's creation. Murder clearly follows on the heels of all that we've been talking about with abortion, but certainly when a person takes the life of someone else, ends that life, that God created? How about this, transgenderism? Can we just understand, Christians, what transgenderism is communicating to God about his creative activity? You understand, right, that somebody who is transgender points the finger at God and says, you screwed up. Look, I'm, I'm for being compassionate and loving and kind, but don't let that blur the lines to what's right and wrong. Obsession with appearance. When you look in the mirror and you go, oh, I wish I weighed 15 pounds less. Oh, I wish I had this feature, or I wish I didn't have this feature, or I wish 
when I looked in the mirror, I saw this type of person and not the person that I am. You understand that you're expressing dissatisfaction with God's creative work, with his handiwork. Judgment of others. When you look at another image bearer of God and you judge them in your heart, you critique them for the way they look, for the way they sound, or how smart you may perceive them to be. See, it goes beyond the 42.6 million. These are all manifestations of being dissatisfied with God's good creation. These are all manifestations of, of looking at what David says when he says, I've been fearfully and wonderfully made and saying, well, you may have been David, but not me. They're ways that we tell God, I'm not good enough the way that you made me. Or we tell God, I don't value your creative work in me. Or we tell him, you made a mistake. Or we tell him, wow, you really messed up on that person. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. It's not enough, y'all, for us to acknowledge that God is the creator and author of life. We have to live like that's the reality as well. Honoring God's creation. Look at verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. We, we covered that earlier, but notice the rest of it. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. That's a little wordy and, and awkward to read it that way. But, but here's what he's saying. God, you wrote all the days of my life before I had lived a single one. From beginning to end. Before I was born, I had a birth date and I, have, I had a date for death. And you are the one that, that, that wrote them all. Death. To think about death as we're entertaining thoughts about life. We're thinking about death as, as we're looking at 42.6 million deaths up there on the screen. But when we think about deaths as, as Christians, we think about death a little bit differently maybe than the world does. And, and here's how we should think about death. And it's our third point. We need to recognize that death is our greatest foe. Death is our greatest foe. Really, our, our greatest one? Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 26. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 26 says, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Uh, so the, the last enemy standing is death, right? And then here in Psalm 139, verse 16, even as he's talking about creating life, he has to acknowledge the reality that death exists. He says, look, in, my, in your book, God, were written all the days of my life when as yet there were not one of them that had come to pass. If we're talking about a total number of days, that means that there's a beginning to that and that means that there's what? An end to that. That there's birth and there's death. And this is one of the more difficult elements for us to consider because what he's saying in, in Psalm 139 verse 16 is this. You ready for it? No one dies early. 
No one dies early. No one dies before they have fulfilled all the days that God had for them. Even the 42.6 million. For some of them, that was 14 days, 15 days. A month to two months, three months. Those were the days that God had for them. But don't get me wrong, when a, when a baby is murdered, though the baby had fulfilled all the days the Lord had written in his book for that baby, look, the act of taking that life is no less horrific. And when a deranged teenager walks into a classroom and shoots 19 children, though those 19 children had lived all the days that God had written for them in his book, the, the act of killing all those 19 children is no less horrific and heinous and atrocious. And it is an assault on God. John 1 verse 4 says, In him, Jesus, was life. And Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. Over and over and over in the Gospels, Jesus talks about have, having the source of life. And yes, oftentimes it's, it's talking about eternal life, but he's also the giver of physical life, the creator of physical life. Colossians 1 says, in him everything was made that has been made. Well, how do we reconcile that with, with the reality of death? Ezekiel 18.23. Ezekiel 18.23 the Lord says, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? He answers the question later in, in Ezekiel 33, verse 11. He asks the question, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Ezekiel 33, 11, he answers it. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Our days have been numbered by the Lord, but even the fact that they have to be numbered is a reminder that we live in a broken and fallen world. So how do we reconcile that? How do we put this together? That God has written all of the days and, and there's, there's 42.6 million abortions. Why were those lives, in our perspective, cut short? Well, the answer is found in Romans 6, 23, the first part of it, and you know it. For the wages of sin is what? Death. We live in a death, in a sin-cursed, death-filled world. Death is a, a, an inevitable, unavoidable reality for those that call this earth home. And so whether it be cancer or natural disasters or whether it be shootings or abortion or old age, all of it is death and all of it is a reminder of the brokenness of the world in which we find ourselves. All of it should cause us to mourn. All of it should cause us to grieve. Death is never something that we welcome, but a reminder that things are not the way that they should be. And so the question is, well, could God not have prevented these abortions? Yes, he could have prevented those abortions. Why didn't he? I, I don't know. 
but let me tell you this. What I do know is if he had prevented those abortions and those babies had been born, all 42.6 million of them would have died later on in their lives. The reason they died is not because God killed them, but because sinful, fallen human beings killed them. Because they live in a broken, fallen, sin-cursed world. God has never aborted a baby. Yes, but doesn't he allow it, Pastor PJ? Yes. Why? I don't know. I don't know. But I trust in his good and perfect and sovereign plan. even for those 42.6 million lives that didn't get to be lived. Did he have a plan for them? Yes, he had a plan for them. Did that plan fail? No, it didn't. We need to not rage against our sovereign God. We need to rage against death. We need to rage against Satan. We need to rage against the system of the world. How do we do that? How do we keep going? Is there hope if death is inevitable? The answer is yes. Because in Christ God, the God of life has overcome death for us. Take your Bibles, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I referenced 15 verse 26 earlier, but turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 if you will. pick up in verse 20. It says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And here's the verse that I read earlier. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Y'all, there's a day coming when our days will no longer be numbered. You will die here, yes, but you will awaken into a life in which you will begin a countless, innumerable, unending number of days. There is no book with your days numbered in eternity because there's no end to your days. Because why? Because death has been overcome. How has it been overcome? It's been overcome through Christ. It's been overcome through the cross. It's been overcome because he was a perfect lamb that was sacrificed for you and for me so that when he rose from the dead, he freed us from the power of death. So that if we put our faith and trust in him, we will rise from the dead as well to be with him for all of eternity without fear of death ever again. That day is coming. That 17 million number has gone up since we've been sitting here tonight. I'll just give you the quantity by over 3,000 lives. In the time that I've been preaching to you tonight, 3,000 
lives taken. And it can feel paralyzing. It, it can feel hopeless. It can feel infuriating. And it is all of those things to some extent or another. But we know the one who wins. And so as Christians, we do what we can. And what we can here in this country, what we can do in part is we can do our civic duty and, and vote. I'm not a political person. Hopefully you know that about me by now. But this issue gets my attention. This issue gets my attention. But politicians come and politicians go. Laws come and laws go. The hope is found in the one who's overcome death. And that's Jesus the God of life, the Lord of life, for you, for me, for those 42.6 million. So, this matters. This matters. And not just during midterms or every four years when a new president is elected. No, this matters right now. And I imagine in a room like this, this issue is more personal for some than it is others. At some point in time, it will probably cross all of your lives in some fashion, some form. It's not enough for us to say abortion is wrong because my political party says it's wrong. We have to be able to say the taking of life is wrong because life is not ours to take because it wasn't ours to make. Life comes from God. He is the author. And that changes the way we think about that baby in the womb. It also changes the way that you think about those that are sitting across the table from you here tonight. And it changes the way that we think about death. Death is a constant reminder to us that we live in a world that's not right. But the hope that we have as Christians is that one day it will be right. Let's pray. Father, we are grieved over that number that grows literally every single second that we sit here tonight. And I pray that that number slows dramatically, drastically down from where it is. God, I pray even right now that if there would be somebody, a, a woman somewhere considering an abortion, that you would intervene, that you would impress upon her that what she's doing is not right, that you would preserve the life of that child. I pray the same thing for if there's a, a, a person somewhere planning another mass shooting that you would stop, that you would intervene, that you would impress upon them that what they are doing is not right. God, I also pray for us that as we think thoughts in our minds about other people, even people in this room that are not honoring to you, that you would impress upon our hearts that what we are doing is not right.
because you are the creator and what you create is good. God, hasten the day when there's no more death. And we get to be with you. But the key to that, Lord, is the gospel. Faith and repentance in Jesus. Because the reality that awaits those that never repent from their sins and put their faith in Jesus is a fate far worse than death. Because there's no end to the torment and the sorrow and the sadness and the isolation and the loneliness and the pain. The place that the Bible describes that Jesus himself describes as weeping and gnashing of teeth. Outer darkness. God, I pray that none in this room would experience that reality. but that we would make sure that we're right with you so that though our days are numbered here, we will awaken to a reality where they will not be numbered any longer forever and ever because we will be with Jesus. There will be no more sin and no more death. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.